Welcome to Alley All Ears, a podcast from the Alley Theater, Houston's theater. Alley All Ears features interviews with directors and designers, playwright Q&As, sneak peeks, and behind-the-scenes information. This week, we focus on classic playwrights featured in our digital season. These conversations with artistic director Rob Melrose and guest dramaturgs focus on August Strindberg, Henrik Ibsen, and Luigi Pirandello. Now sit back, relax, and learn more about these fascinating playwrights and their plays. From our home to yours, Alley All Ears. I do want to talk about the kind of tension that I think is there between Enemy of the People and Pariah. But first, mm-hmm. why don't we talk a little bit about The Stronger and Half Sheet since those yeah, are the yeah. ones that are currently streaming. Yeah. So The Stronger, we talked about earlier how a lot of Strindberg is about the conflict between men and women, kind of the mm-hmm. psychological and sociological warfare between the yep. two sexes. But The Stronger places the emphasis on two women who are in conflict with one another. Um, I guess, what do you think that says about where Strindberg was at this time? Do you think Mm -hmm. it's significant that this conflict while between two women is instigated by the presence of a man in -hmm. both of their lives? Or do you think they would have found a reason to be in conflict just based on their own identities? Yeah. No, it's, it's interesting that the, so, so, there was a big question early in the careers of, of Ibsen and Strindberg of like, what, what, what should the role of women be? Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and often how these two playwrights answer this question is often reduced to Ibsen's answer is, um, is dollhouse, which is very, very much feels like kind of a, women's liberation story and um strindberg's answer is miss julie which is much more oppressive much more um misogynistic even um the introduction is certainly misogynistic the the play i would argue is a little bit more more um, nuanced much more nuanced i think um but um but i think that that oversimplifies things right because um actually you know strindberg started out um a feminist and he he was married to siri von essen and siri von essen was a very interesting woman who had grown up in a in a household where um gender roles were, were were that no one was supposed to adhere to gender roles so she would was raised you might say as a man or she, she was raised without, you know, without the constrictions of, of, of the female gender roles. So she, you know, so they had a very, what we would consider modern marriage. I mean, she was a very strong woman, an actress and, um, and there are interviews where you would listen to Strindberg and say, wow, she has very progressive views on on all of this well then they got divorced and again the deal with Strindberg is he's very emotional and he all of a sudden he had this period where he hated women and and he wrote stuff out, out, out of that but i think that period where he was really angry with siri von essen it's it, it's 
you know, the question is, do, do we cancel Strindberg because of, because of that, that moment? And, and do, do we even cancel those plays? And, you know, I'd, I'd argue that we, we miss out on a lot if we, if we cancel him and cancel those plays because uh, there's, there's a lot to unpack there. And spending time in Sweden, of course, which is, you know, uh, one of, one of the most, you know, liberated countries for, for women, you know, women there have wrestled with Strindberg and, and, and they found their way through it and they found him useful, um, as well, which I, I, which is how, how I feel. The irony of all this is that, um, our two company members, um, Elizabeth Bunch and, um, Melissa Pritchett, they are our two women currently in, in our company. We only have two women. That's going to change eventually. Um, that we'll, we'll have more. We're planning on growing. Um, but, but I inherited this company with, with only two women. Um, and the, they have shared a dressing room for years and years and years, but they say, you know, they, they rarely get to do a play together. And this is, this was actually their biggest experience, um, um, being, uh, being on stage, even though it's, it's filmed, but being in a scene, a long extended scene together. And, and, you know, if you, the, we all know the Bechdel test, which yeah. is, um, you know, it, talking about movies, but we're, we actually made a little movie, but the, it applies to place it, 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 and you, it applies to place, but it's three, um, a movie has to have three things that it has to have first. It has to have at least two women in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they have to talk to each other and they, have to and, and they, they, they have to, well, the one I have is they, they have to speak about something other than a man. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. so, so whether, whether this play, um, you know, um, meets the Bechtel test, you know, what, what we can dig in, into that. But what's interesting is, you know, it could be that Strindberg, winds up being the first first play for these two women at the alley that really passes the Bechtel test because they they actually get to do a scene together and mm. and they even yeah they we get to do the names because even though he lists them as Mrs. X and Mrs. Y yeah. um one's named Amelie and so so mm. they do but do they speak to each other well one one speaks the entire time the other the other the other doesn't so yeah. um but and then you know, you have this, you, you, you had asked, you know, is, is, is the conversation about the man or, you know, the husband, um, you know, the husband of Mrs. X, um, or, um, and, and whether or not he's been faithful and, and what he did to help, um, help the others get, get jobs at the theater. Um, or is it, is this really about the two of them? And, and I think that's an open question. I think people have to watch it and, and decide for yeah. themselves whether whether this is about about them or um, or whether it's it's about the man. I I, I tend to think it's about them, and so yeah. so in my in my book, this really does pass the Bechtel test. And um, you know these performances um, by Melissa Pritchett and Elizabeth Bunch. Elizabeth is the one who doesn't speak. Mm-hmm. Melissa is the one who speaks the whole time. Um, it's a really really extraordinary performance on both of their parts. Oh, yeah. It's worth seeing. Yeah. Yeah. can't believe I messed up the Bechtel test just now. No, you, um, you know what? Uh, I, I, I looked it up before, but, but before, and, and it, it, there are variations on it, but this is, yeah, the, no. I, I just said the original one. Yeah. 
I missed Give the yourself most important a break. part. It's fine. Yeah. It doesn't matter right now. Um, uh, so uh, half a sheet of paper is the other one that's currently streaming right now. Yeah. And that's not a Strindberg work that often gets staged. I mean, all of them are a bit more, you know, obscure and not often produced, but half a sheet of paper is, wasn't even originally a play. No. And I know for my part, I could, I could barely find any past production history where people had adapted it for the stage. Yeah. So I guess what made you think to adapt it? Well, as opposed to I, any of his other short stories. Yeah. Well, I actually read it in in my Swedish literature course that I I, I, I went to. I studied in um, Uppsala, mm-hmm. um, which is uh, it's north of Stockholm. It's where um, Fanny and Alexander was filmed. So, if you like the movie Fanny Alexander, mm-hmm. just imagine Rob up there studying studying Swedish, and I had a wonderful class on Swedish literature. And this was the Strindberg piece we read. And among Swedes, this is a really, really favorite um, story because it's so unique in that it's, um, it really goes into detail about these two years of life, but the, the, it's about a half sheet of paper, a a bunch of um, notes next to a telephone, but you know, there's kind of a play here because the story itself is about a half sheet of paper too, but it covers so much, so much life and so much emotion in, in a half sheet. And, and I thought, um, you know, I don't know if I, I don't know if I would have made it into a play, but I thought, you know, this could really be a good little film, you know, and it could be kind of a narrative film where we have a a voiceover and then we have these two ways of exploring it. One version one is kind of a stop motion uh, um, movie, and the other, and we were influenced by a film called Le Jeté, um, which is a French science fiction film that's all still images. And then um, we were also, you know, influenced by kind of by by you know Ken Burns films or you know um, the. The, the other the version two is drawings it's a series of of wonderful drawings um, by Michael Loker and and Rachel Applegate mm-hmm. um, did a great job of, of of filming the drawings and kind of going going from one to another in kind of a Ken Burnsy kind of way mm-hmm. yeah so I think we've only got a little under 15 minutes left but there's a one or two more things I would love to hit on. Um, I did want to talk a little bit about how you translated these plays yourself, which I think is very impressive, considering they were written in a slew of languages. But um, but can we quickly, just quickly hear a little bit about that? Sure, sure. Especially like why you decided to translate it yourself instead of using existing translations? Yeah. I mean, it goes back to... um, in high school, I had an amazing French teacher and, um, you know, we were only high schoolers, but she really fed us like great literature, like, um, Sartre's No Exit and, mm-hmm. um, Les, um, Hugo's, um, Les, Mis- Les Miserables mm-hmm. and, um, and I, I, and Camus, um, um, The Stranger. So we, we spent a lot of time on these great, 
great works, these great French works. And I really found that reading reading a great work in the original is really satisfying because there's a lot that's lost in translation. And and I started translating because I I really fell in love with the play No Exit, and I really wanted to uh, to to direct it. But I, I hated the translations that existed. Mm-hmm. And so I, I did my own translation and I had to contact the, the Sartre estate, can, you know, can, can we do this? And they gave me permission. And so I directed my own translation. And besides the fact that I just liked my translation better, because it really reflected my understanding of what mm-hmm. the originals said, instead of going with somebody else said, I really found that because I had done all that translation work, it, which is kind of, it's, it's laborious, it's slow, it's slow. Um, I, I found that I had really spent a lot of time with the text before I even entered the first rehearsal. So I just knew, I knew why each line was there, why each word was there. And I really, um, I really had a, you know, deep sense of it. So, so from then on, I really felt like, you know, even if, even if there's an okay translation out, translation out there, or even a good one. I kind of felt like I, I really like to try to do better than that and, um, and, and translate it myself. And the benefit to my directing is so big. And so, you know, I, I would, I would translate things from French. And then my next language I learned was, um, German and then Italian. And then because I was such a big Strindberg fan, um, I started learning Swedish a, a long time ago. But I, but I'm also good friends with our translator of the Ibsen, um, Paul mm-hmm. Walsh. And she translated a lot of the Strindberg I did at Cutting Ball. But there are some plays that he didn't want to translate. He didn't, uh, by the first um, Strindberg play I translated was Miss Julie, because uh, he felt like, you know, there are plenty of Miss Julie translations. I don't want to do that one. But I but I really wanted to get into Miss mm-hmm. Julie and learn more about it. And then I did The Stronger and then than, than these other plays. But it's been, um, it's been a great part of my process and it's something that... Um, I plan on, um, you know, I plan on doing um, more and more in the future. So in our last few minutes, let's talk about Enemy of the People and Pariah, since those are the ones that are still upcoming. Fabulous. So they're both, Enemy of the People in particular speaks very strongly to our current political moment. And obviously that was a very intentional choice that was made. Um, In what ways do you think that audiences may recognize our moment in this play and what do you think they can take away from it or learn from it? Yeah. Um, it's interesting. It's a great, it's, it's just a great play mm-hmm. in and of itself. But, um, when I saw it and I saw this when I was 18, it was again, my, my first year in college. Um, so I was getting to know Miss Julie through my wife and then across the street from the college is the McCarter theater which is the region, the biggest regional theater in New Jersey. And they were doing a production of an enemy of the people and they did it in period. And, um, I was, I was, um, I was not cynical at all as an 18 year old. And I just, uh, and when I watched it, I said, wow, this is such a great, great play, but it's always just going to be a period play because, um, nobody, nobody in the government would ever be that corrupt. Right? But back then I thought, I thought it would be, I thought it would be impossible today for a government yeah. to be, to, to be corrupt. 
And of course, I, I should mm-hmm. give uh, our our listeners who haven't seen it yet a, a little synopsis. Um, the it's it's a spa town in in Norway. Um, so the the, the main um, the main industry of the town is the spa, and the spa is is only two years old, and it's really enlivened the town. Everybody's making money. They're getting taxes. They're getting um, tourists from all over. Everything's great, and the 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 main doctor in town and the mayor are brothers. Um, the mayor's the older brother. The 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 doctor's the younger brother, and um, the doctor discovers that the water is poisoned um and you know that there's runoff from like a a a tannery and and in order to uh, move the pipe it would be very very expensive um and it would take about two years um and he said but people could get sick and people could die so the question there's no question we have to just shut down spa. The brother says, okay, you think we should shut down the spa, but you realize how expensive it's going to be. Everybody's going to have to be taxed in order to pay for this. It's going to take two years. And by the time those two years are done, our town will be completely dead. It'll be a ghost town and it'll ruin the economy of the town. And, you know, there's, there. There's a little bit of time of thinking about a middle ground, but um, as as time goes on, at first the townspeople are totally with the doctor, but as time goes on and they realize the consequences of shutting down, um, they realize um, they go with the mayor and say, let's just hide this. Let's just minimize it. Let's not make a big deal about it because we don't want to ruin our, our beloved town. Of course, mm-hmm. I think so, this will sound familiar to anybody listening with, you know, COVID, you know, and the question of we need to stay home. We need to wear masks. We need to not go to restaurants. We need to not go to theater. And of course the people, we need to shut down the schools and, and then, but you've got the people who are saying, you know, but what's that going to do to the, bars and the restaurants and the theaters and and what's going to do to the schools what's going to do to our children all these questions come up and um what i love about ibsen is what we've all experienced now is you know the answers to the questions aren't aren't easy you know the there's a big moral you know answer but then there are big consequences mm-hmm. and uh, to you know to shutting down their consequences and and just because the moral answer is right doesn't mean you don't have to deal with all the consequences that come from, from uh, a shutdown. Uh, oddly enough, the thing that changed my mind about the play was the Flint water crisis, you know, mm-hmm. that, the, that the Flint, the water in Flint, Michigan was poisoned. And, and I remember the first thing that came to mind is, Oh my God, now this play is relevant again mm-hmm. because it's water, it's corruption all you have to do is set the play in Flint, right? And what's amazing is now you don't have to set it anywhere. Everybody, yes. it's everybody's lived experience now. So everybody can, you know, talk about um, yeah. what what it's like to be in this situation. Yeah, it's like without changing a thing, this play managed to just miraculously become remarkably prescient. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. 
And Pariah is uh, on a much smaller scale than mm-hmm. Enemy of the People, but it also talks about sort of uh, personal responsibility and legal accountability for mm-hmm. one's actions. And so do you think there's a dialogue between these two plays, specifically at the end of the season, that can create similar echoes in our current moment? Definitely. Definitely. It starts almost as a game. There's a, there's, there's a chest full of gold, mm-hmm. gold artifacts. And um, there's an archaeologist and his guest. Um, the guest has arrived, a, you know, a month or two ago. They've gotten to know each other. They've become friends. And the archaeologist says, you know, uh, I could, I could take this money. I could, I could, I could take this gold. I found it, and just, you know, spend it. I could, I could melt it down into ducats, and, you know, probably nothing would happen to me. But my moral center doesn't allow me to do that. What do you think of this? And of course that his guest would really like that money. Um, would, would, would really like, you know, he, he, he covets the money. He wants the money, the, the, the gold, but as time goes on, you get to know these people more and more, you actually realize that they both committed crimes and, um, the archeologist killed someone and got away with it. Whereas, the guest um, forged a document, forged a document that he didn't even really need to forge. He could have, the person he asked to co-sign on something refused. It would have been easy for him to ask someone else and it would have been fine. But he, he just decided, he got lazy and he just decided to sign. And he had to go to jail for two years. And there's kind of a question of, you know, um, even though these people two months ago didn't even know each other, there's kind of a question, um, you know, you, the archaeologist who got away with murder, owe me something. You owe me for the two years I had to pay for my, my crime, where you didn't have to pay for your crime at all. And therefore, you owe me this money. This is my money. This is my gold. And so, yeah, the questions of morality, personal responsibility. And of course, there's, this is, this is the play. Again, you know, Strindberg was just in, influenced by so many different people, by Munch, by Edgar Allan Poe. And, and this is the play that is the most like an Edgar Allan Poe story, like the cask of Amontillado. And, and if you don't remember the cask of Amontillado, go to our, our um, website under Alley at Home. And David Rainey has done a beautiful job um, recording um, the, uh, an audio recording of that story, which is just really, really, really great. Um, so, and, and we, we talk about this play being a play that, you know, reminds us very much of, of Harold Pinter um, and, and kind of plays with a lot of, you know, um, a, a lot of tension, tension you can cut with a knife. 